as you're turning back to page 1184 in the Pew Bibles, may I uh, say to Andrew that should I be inclined to come to Strictly Come Dancing, he will no longer be the worst dancer there. Uh, but I think it's unlikely. But uh, we commend him to the Right. Colossians chapter 3. I, I was given the chance to choose my own passage and choose my own title for this morning. Uh, so I've chosen this passage, Colossians 3, and my title, Easter People. It's the name given to a group that met for a number of years, largely Methodists, led by Rob Frost, and it was one of the many occasions throughout the land when people gathered. Uh, now we have New Word Alive, I was involved in the Old Word Alive, there's the Keswick Convention, there's New Wine, there's Spring Harvest, and when you add them all together, you think of all the thousands of people who meet uh, as the people of God, and sometimes I pray and wonder, do we make the impact we ought in our society of all these thousands of people? Yes, it's good that we do meet together, I'm all for it, and I'm very much involved in Word Alive and Keswick, but I would always remind people who gather on these occasions that the real proof of how good it's been is not how much we've enjoyed singing together, meeting together, but what happens when we go home. How different are we? Will we live out what we proclaim as Easter people? It's not hard to sing about the Lordship of Jesus when everybody else agrees with us. How about living it when most people don't? agree with us and I would submit to you as we look at this passage that we're living in a society which increasingly will be alienated from us and we from it unless God by his Holy Spirit sends a great awakening and revival. So we do need to be ready for that, to dare to be Easter people. And I turn to Colossians because it's very relevant. It's written to a, a, a church Paul had never been to uh, it was founded by a man called Epaphras, who's mentioned a couple of times in the letter. Uh, it was a church where already, a young church, there was false teaching and false emphases. And Paul wants to glorify Jesus. And we read that creed a few moments ago, which comes straight from this Colossian letter. And in order to meet false teaching, he builds up the glory of Jesus. And in chapter 2, he underlines what he's done on the cross. Verse 15 He's made a public spectacle of the powers and authorities of the world, triumphing over them by the cross. And in that chapter, he will more than once talk about dying with Christ, verse 20. And now at the beginning of chapter 3, being raised with Christ. All these are great gospel truths. And on this Sunday, traditionally called Low Sunday, kind of Easter's gone by and we're now starting off again. On this Sunday, we need to be reminded that you know my famous four words when I was, well you don't, some of you do, after Easter, always Easter. It's true, and in that light we live. If I were to give a, a, a subtitle to my sermon this morning, it would be uh, Gospel Grammar. Let me explain. I, I am keen on grammar. Just occasionally I, I won't sing certain words of songs the way they're printed because I don't believe the grammar and I will sing them grammatically. I do believe the Holy Spirit ought to keep to good grammar and uh, if the, it hasn't worked I will change it. But that's just by the way. Uh, but the gospel grammar is this. There's a distinction between uh, the, uh, the gospel indicative and the gospel imperative. Now I do hope you're... It's not so long since you were at school, you'll remember the indicative mood and the imperative mood. Now, most religions of the world go this way. You obey the imperative in order that you may get hold of the indicative. 
You do things to gain something. That's how it goes on. From the one violent extreme of a terrorist, Islamist terrorist, who will kill himself and hundreds of other people in order to gain some uh, ridiculous, perverted, evil place in paradise. Well, that's the extreme evil. The not-so-evil is the sort of person who imagines that if we do good things and we come to church and we go through a ceremony, we shall get it. The Christian gospel is that we enjoy it and therefore we do it. Just look at the indicatives and imperatives before we move off grammar. Uh, In verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. Christ is seated. You died. Your life is hidden. Christ is your life. You will appear with him. You got the message? Those are the indicatives. And the imperatives? Set your hearts, verse 1. Set your minds, verse 2. Put to death, verse 5. Clothe yourselves, verse 12. The challenge is, if I enjoy these truths, then I shall want to obey. I would not work my soul to say, for that my Lord has done, but I would work like any slave for love of his dear son. And if you think that's doggerel, it's quoted by a famous ex-professor of the university. Biblical studies here in a book, so it can't be bad if he quotes it. And it's certainly right theologically. So let's look this morning at the new perspective in verses 1 to 4, which will lead to the new incentive of verses 5 onwards. A new perspective. This is where we are. Um, I have often uh, in my days here pointed out to people that art is my worst subject. When I was at school, uh, having found an old report, why do you keep your old school reports? But I did discover one of my old school reports. And most of the subjects, I did rather well, I must say, with all due humility. I was quite good at most subjects. And then it came to art. Number in class 31. Position in class 30. Ah, you think I wasn't quite the worst. I do remember one lab was away all term, so it was uh, 31 really. And the, the art teacher's comment was only fair. Uh, only fair. In the bottom of the class, well, there you are, how nice she was. I could never understand in art how to get the perspective. You're supposed to hold a, a pencil up to the horizon or something, and it made no sense whatever to me. I never could understand perspective. But I think I do understand perspective in life. And we need to get a new perspective if we are going to be Easter people. Let me give you three ways. First one, what I call heartbeat. I'm delighted to know that heartbeat is on ITV again tonight at 8 o'clock. It's it's my wife and I's favourite subject, favourite film is heartbeat. It has no emotional involvement. It doesn't make any intellectual demands. It's great stuff for a man who's been working hard on Sunday. So tonight we shall relax in heartbeat. And if you think that proves how, what a Philistine I am, you're quite right. Uh, But I shall go on enjoying it. But here's the heartbeat of verse 1. Set your hearts on things above. What do you make of hearts? Oh, in, in, in our culture, the heart is the seat of the emotion. Valentine's Day, the big hearts, you know. That's what it's all about. The Hebrews are much more down to earth. They knew that the heart was not the seat of the emotion. The seat of the emotion, the bowels. But that doesn't go too well on a Valentine card, so you would have to put the heart. But they were quite right. But the heart, you see, is not the seat of the emotions. The heart is the seat of my me as a person. What makes me tick? And so when Paul says, set your hearts, 
He actually means seek. Make it a priority. What? Things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's why we read Psalm 110. That great psalm quoted often in the New Testament. The Lord, that is God, said to my Lord, that is Jesus, sit at my right hand. So that's where he is. After Easter. So what does it mean if, if I'm going to set my heart on things above? Oh, is it the right hand of God? It's a place of power. It's, it's a place of victory. It's a place of holiness. It's a place of prayer. Because he's praying there. The Bible says so. Are those the things that make your heart beat? Is that your ambition to be deeper in holiness? To be greater in prayer? To enjoy the power that comes of being close to a risen Lord. Is that what makes your heart beat? What really gets you excited? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Heartbeat. Secondly, in this new perspective, mindset. Verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. To understand that, let me give an illustration. In the Gospels, Jesus has the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them the questions, who do people say I am? Well, they give some quotes. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, says Peter. And then Jesus begins to talk, begins to talk about the cross. And Peter says, no, Lord. No, Lord. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not mind the things of God, but the things of the world. That's the phrase. You do not mind... Peter, your views are worldly. You're thinking of a worldly Messiah. I'm not going to be that. You're thinking of victory in this world. I'm not going to be that. I'm going to die on the cross. Set your mind on things above. So the challenge to us, you see, is that where do my mind set? The Bible's full of the use of the mind. Romans 12, when Paul is writing again about how we should live if we believe the truth of Easter. Romans 12, that we should be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Focus our mind. We don't have to be highly intellectual. If we are, fine. If we're not, fine. But we all have minds and set them on the things of God. There's a lovely quote from Martin Luther here. Now, I try this quote at all kinds of conferences, and it always gets a negative, bland response, but I do like it, so you're going to get it this morning. Martin Luther said this, You cannot stop a bird landing on your head, but you can prevent it building a nest there. No, you're as bland as everybody else. I think it's great stuff. Uh, You see, I don't know, you may say, you've never had a bird ever land on your head. I have actually, in the days when I was a curate, budgie regards were very common. Every house you went to had a budgie. And if a budgie landed on the curate's head, the person would say, Oh, isn't it lovely? He loves you. I think, I wish he wouldn't love me. I'm glad you <laughs> the budgie seems to have gone the way of all flesh, and I'm delighted. But there we are. Uh, no, I can't stop a bird landing on my head. But what does Martin Luther mean that, by that phrase? You got, I'm sure you've guessed it. You can't stop the devil putting an evil thought in your mind. If you've never had an evil thought in your mind, well, I don't believe you. The devil can put evil thought, but I can prevent my enjoying it, my letting it stay there. And because we live in a world where evil thoughts are bombarded at us, all of us, not just young people, we pray very specially for them, but all of us, 
then we can't stop it coming in. We read it, we see it. It will. But I can stop in enjoying it. I always remember hearing a very famous preacher of a bygone age, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who the oldest will remember, a great preacher with a great Welsh voice, who preached for a very long time, but you didn't worry. He was a great preacher. And there was a scandal going on at the time on Dr. Lloyd-Jones. It was in all the press. And the Lloyd-Jones thundered, asking his congregation, including me, how many of you people read every word of this scandal going on and in the process commit adultery by proxy? That hurt. He read all this story and we said how awful and enjoyed reading every minute of it. You see, that is a tragedy. The thoughts, we don't have to cherish them. We don't have to keep reading them. There are things we can forget to read. We don't have to. And the challenge is, where does my mind set? How much of my time do I spend letting God speak to me through his word? Is that how I feed myself? Mindset, a new perspective, heartbeat mindset. Then in verses 3 and 4, what I call life force. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died to sin, you're alive in Christ, you've raised with Christ, so your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's a, a, a nice old hymn that's been resurrected by a lovely new tune. Before the throne of God above, I have a stronger, perfect plea. And the last verse of that hymn, the original says, My life is hid with Christ in God. Uh, the modernization of it says, My life is safe with Christ in God. And I'm sufficiently of a pedant to think she didn't write that word. She actually wrote hid, and I think she meant hid, because it was based on this verse in Colossians. Now, I understand what they meant with safe, but I think it goes beyond. What do I mean? Well, my life is hidden with Christ in God. It, it is safe. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 that we've got an inheritance incorruptible that is preserved in heaven for you who are being shielded. So my investment there is safe. Our investments on earth aren't so safe these days. But that one is. So it is safe, but it is still hidden. That's what Paul is saying here. It's hidden with Christ. When Christ with your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And 1 John 3 tells us that we are now children of God. But it doesn't always appear that we are. And in spite of what I'm going to say the rest of my sermon, and we are going to be different from the world around us, you can't always tell a Christian. It isn't always obvious, but one day we shall see him, says John, and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is my life. This is a life force raised with Christ. Now, this is a new perspective. Your heartbeat, your mindset, your life force in Christ. If that is even partially so, let me then speak for the last bit of my sermon on what I call a new incentive. Because all that is true, there are two things I've got to do, and I do it in the power of the Spirit. Paul elsewhere says that I mortify the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So I've got to get rid, and I've got to put on, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Get rid, 
put on. What do I get rid? We're going to go. It's a kind of bird's eye view, but I hope it's a challenging bird's eye view. For example, verse five. It immediately starts with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, even greed is probably a sexual connotation in that context. Now, sometimes people say the church is always going on about sex. That's not the worst thing in the world. Just be careful. When Jesus talked about the evil that comes from within and makes a man unclean, what were the first things Jesus mentioned? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Please don't suggest he didn't take that seriously. It heads the list because it is a a powerful force for good and ill. God knows it, the devil knows it. In an age when we are bombarded, why? Oh, how often have I been asked the question, why is the homosexual business the great thing that's dividing the church and will divide it? Because that's what we are bombarded with. The gay lobby knows what it's about. And we are being bombarded with it constantly. Pick up any edition of the church reading newspaper, and I guarantee that on pages 1, 2 and 3 there will be at least two, if not three articles, all about the gay lobby and its way it's changing things in the church. So, of course, this is an issue. And Paul says simply, get rid of it. Don't compromise with it. Don't go on endlessly debating it, knowing the devil loves Christians who debate and do nothing. Get rid of it. The Bible's quite clear. This is where, and you'll see it as I go through the rest of my sermon, where we're going to be different as Easter people. Bound to be different. We're daring to stand for something which the world thinks is gone. One man, one woman for life. That is where sexual activity is meant to be. The Bible is absolutely clear from beginning to end. And unless we are dare, dare to stand for that, we shall cave into the world. If we do stand for it, we shall be different people. We shall be alienated increasingly. Make no mistake about it. So get rid But it's not all about that. That's there. That's where verse 6 says, Because of these the wrath of God is coming, and you used to walk that way, but now no more. And dare to be different. But of course there's more to it, isn't there? What about verse 8? Get rid of all these things. And if you notice the next list, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, are all to do basically with speech. Well, this is where I would find a challenge. Because of whatever gifts I may have, speaking is one of the things that I do a lot of. I know how easily the lips that can speak the word of God equally speak other things. And I have to guard my lips and ask God's forgiveness when they've not done glory to God. So, yes, this is just as important. I guess more churches are split asunder by gossip than they are by adultery. And I need to be careful that I'm not one who makes that happen. And so Paul tells us to get rid of all these things. Be careful. It doesn't fit the children of God, Easter people. Or in verse 9, don't lie to each other. And it's very interesting. Paul then goes on to merge what we get rid of and what we put on. Take off your old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed. Two different words for new. The first means absolutely different. 
The other means daily, daily, each day we're getting more and more like our Creator. And a very intriguing mark of that in verse 11 is that it gets away from all the old divisions. Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, the outcast of society, slave or free. Christ is all and in all. And one of the marks of Easter people in a world, not only its sexual purity, in a world of sexual impurity, not only daring uh, not to be involved in gossip, slander, innuendo, oh, we all again, we're horrified at what we read of in happening in politics today, and rightly so. Just let's be sure that we don't indulge the same kind of activities uh, as the ones we condemn in the world. And one of the other marks of Easter people is that it breaks across all the divisions that are there. Many of you will know that I've spent a lot of time ministering in Northern Ireland. And one of the meetings I cherish still is I remember going to Londonderry. Uh, and there I was, in a, in a, just six of us, in this little room for a Bible study. The host and me and four ex-prisoners from the Mayish prison had all been converted in prison. Two of them Roman Catholic, two of them Protestant, and they'd all become real Christians in prison. And uh, one of the Roman Catholics saying to me as we finished, he said, he thanked me and then said, isn't it wonderful? If I hadn't become a Christian in prison, I'd have been after that guy's life as soon as I got out. And now, it's different. And so this is a real witness in the world in which we live. Get rid of those things that deny impurity, Wrong language, gossip, slander, and the kind of divisions, the creating divisions or enjoying divisions. And then, if I'm getting rid of, what do I put on? If you look, look at verses 12 to 17, it's, it's wonderful. It's, again, it's the indicative of the imperative. We are God's chosen people by his grace. We are holy and we are dearly loved. So clothe yourselves with compassion. That's the emotional word. That actually does mean, I'm sorry to keep mentioning it, that does mean bowels. That's what the word means in the original. That is deeply moved within. Deeply moved. Now, there are some churches where everything is emotionally high. And I run away like a, I run like a mile from people who want to twist me emotionally. Put the twist on. But I'm equally concerned that sometimes we can face the deep truths of the gospel without being moved. If the cross doesn't move me anymore, if the wonder of Christ coming down from heaven doesn't move me anymore, perhaps I need to have a look at my spiritual life. You notice on television how in the news items come on, they'll sort of say something like this, uh, the pictures that to follow might be a bit disturbing to some. So the implication is switch it off if you like. So somebody's dying of starvation and me, poor soul, sitting with the television might feel a bit upset. Come on. Let's be real. Isn't it good that I should be moved sometimes? Moved with compassion. My challenge is, can you be moved with compassion as much for the people who are going to hell as the people who are dying of starvation? Which is a worse fate? 
You see, it's very possible that I do get moved when I think of some of the people in terrible need in the world, but I don't get moved about my neighbour. And when we hear about evangelism and guest services, well, my neighbours are nice people. They may be going to hell at the end of the day, but it doesn't move me. Compassion. And the next word is kindness. And that word kindness is almost the same as the word for Christ. It's one letter different from Christ. Uh, And kindness is a lovely gift. And you could go on. Look at verse 13, for example. 13b. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It doesn't say forgive because the Lord forgave you, though that would be a motivation. But forgive in the same way in which he forgave. So when we say the Lord's prayers, we do so often. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Have you thought what might happen if the Lord took us seriously? Forgive like I forgive. So I say, well, I would forgive, but I can't forget. So carry on, Lord. Forgive, but don't forget. But he says, I will forget. I will remember your sins no more. Thank God. So I must. Or, well, yes, I would forgive, but it's their job to make the first move after all. They're the ones who cause the trouble. Is that what God says? Didn't he send his son to the cross before ever I could have responded? So, please, ask God to give you the grace in this world to be the kind of people who demonstrate that forgiveness. Not a soft virtue, a strong virtue. Not pretending sin doesn't matter, but daring to go that further. Smile and love as the perfect virtue. And then you see as we conclude verses 15 to 17, you get some incentive strengtheners, if you like. These are things that strengthen us. Verse 15 uh, is one of my favourite words. It's the only only verse in the Bible that is a verse which links with cricket. Did you know that? Let the peace of Christ umpire in your hearts. Now, before anybody calls me at church door and says, Paul didn't know anything about cricket, you're quite right. I did know the fact that Paul knew nothing about cricket. He would have been a better man if he hadn't known about cricket, but he didn't know anything about cricket. Let the peace of Christ umpire. The word means umpire. And when I played cricket, when the umpire's finger went up, I may have thought some serious doubts about his sanity, but I would still have walked nonetheless grumbling the while, but I would have gone out because the umpire had the last word. Not nowadays, you have after a television replay and all sorts of things before you finally give in. But the, the word is there. Cricket or not, let the peace of Christ have the last word. Is that true in your family when you don't agree? Is that true in our church life when we don't always agree? Of course there's a place for difference of opinion. There's a a place for sensible debate and dialogue, of course. But let the peace of Christ have the last word. And that will come in verse 16, as the word of Christ dwells in us richly. And then you see, whatever we do in word or deed, we can do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Have you noticed one word that comes in all three verses, 15, 16, 17, at the end? Be thankful, verse 15. With gratitude, verse 16. Giving thanks, verse 17. You get the message? Eucharist, that word is. Not a communion service, but just altogether gratitude. 
I said at 9.15 that uh, I made a comment about Margaret at 9.15. I did say she, I wouldn't mention it at 11, but I am going to. She will forgive me over lunch, I'm sure. That uh, there were the days when I, I never... I didn't ever went to the co-op until I retired. There's a, there's a kind of BC and AD in my life, in my retirement. Before my retirement, the co-op was a place down there that I sort of passed occasionally. Uh, I now, I meet quite a few at the co-op. We have little pastoral chats. Anyway, Margaret in the days before I ever went to the co-op said that she tried to make a kind of witness in her conversations. And the comment she made, she's probably forgotten she made it, was that she noticed how often at the co-op and elsewhere... People's first comments would always be a grumble. They'd grumble about the weather, they'd grumble about the government. Uh, if they didn't know who she was, they'd grumble about the vicar, they were, whatever it was, they would grumble. Uh, and she said it, it was quite a witness to be, just to say thank you about something, to say something that was gratitude. Can I say that's not just for the co-op? In life, how easily we are led to be grumblers. I'm grateful to Nancy Heap for giving me a, a, a 17th century nun's prayer, which is a great... You must ask Nancy to give you a copy of the 17th century nun's prayer. It's great stuff, and it's just reminded me that sometimes, as, old, as you get older, you can indulge in the grumbling process. So if you're getting in my category, be careful. But grumbling, grumbling is a thing that uh, should not be. Gratitude, rather than grumbling, and whatever you do, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you see, this is a challenge, isn't it? If we claim that he is Lord, it is living in the light of his Lordship that makes all the difference. Later on, if we had time, it affects the home, it affects the work, it affects the church. But I'm going to ask you to do now what uh, is unusual. You may have noticed, you were very careful and observant, that we moved the prayers from where they were in the service. It was my uh, request, because I wanted to move straight from the sermon into the hymn. Will you please pick up a copy of the hymn? Uh, if you've been asleep, we're not singing yet, we're just looking at the hymn. That's right, thank you. Uh, and it, it's all about the Lordship of Christ. And I chose this hymn deliberately, because I want... To move into this thought of being Easter people under his lordship. Verse 1 is the lord of creation. Verse 2, the lordship that went all the way to the cross. That marvellous king that only had a crown of thorns. Verse 3, the lordship of the glorious Easter resurrection that's always true. And then, dear Stuart Townend, he is great. He doesn't miss a trick. The last verse is all about the final lordship. The final day of judgment. Please note the words you're going to sing. Jesus is Lord. A shout of joy. Well, we understand that. A cry of anguish. As he returns and every knee bows low. Oh, that final day will not be for everybody a shout of joy. Every knee will bow. And those who rejected him will bow. And it will be an awesome day of anguish. That every eye and every heart will see his glory. The judge of all will take his children home. Would you be one of them? Can you with all honesty say that I'm sure that day will be for me a shout of joy? If you're not, then Andrew and myself and everybody else who knows the Lord would love to help you to find that. You see, I was reminded yesterday uh, Margaret and I and my son and his wife stood with a thousand other people at Hillsborough 20 years after that awesome day of when the Hillsborough disaster, we had our silence yesterday. Yes, of course, I was there 20 years ago when that happened. 
And I've been reminded this week, sometimes there was a lot of superficiality. We've gone over the ground all over again. Whatever the rights and wrongs, the thing I remember most of all, as I spent a whole week counselling after being there on that event, that 96, mostly young people, entered a football stadium full of excitement, see their team to Wembley, and at six minutes past three, they were facing eternity. Were they with Christ? Some, yes, I suppose. Some, no, certainly. And I went away from that occasion with a renewed determination. I went straight on to a mission in Jersey, which God seemed especially blessed, partly because I was fired up afresh. You see, it's no use saying, well, one day, or living in the delusion that many people, even churchgoers, go into, that somehow we all get there at the end. No, we don't. And it is to me a reminder that if we're going to be Easter people, both with our lips and the way we live, we're under his lordship. Or are we? If you're not, then please, through faith and trust, enter. But most of us are. God give us grace to live and speak under the Lordship of Christ for his praise and glory. Before we sing that hymn, let's pray together.